Mark's gospel this morning. We are excited to just move into this new series in the gospel of Mark. Um, Josh Montague set us up so well last week, um, just giving us sort of an overview and, and what this book is like and where is Mark taking us and some of its, its goals and ways in which he communicates. And hopefully we can, as that sort of illustration, let's gather around this campfire and hear these stories uh, that are going to help us know who Jesus is and what his mission is. And so we're going we're gonna to do that today. Now, from the moment you woke up this morning from your bed and you rolled out, maybe you grabbed your phone right away or made your way to the, the restroom or you got coffee, checked some emails, or maybe you were listening to the radio on your way here, you probably heard dozens of ads or you were, you were being branded by all of these brands that are around us. Some marketers would estimate that we encounter maybe even upwards of multiple thousands, maybe 6,000 plus ads every single day. That seems like a lot, depending on how much internet usage you have, but uh, you can't get around it. They come in all forms, all locations. You know, if I'm at Cud Foods swiping my card, there's that little, little stand there where people, I guess, maybe still write checks with all those pictures and ads of people telling me, you know, about their real estate agency. Um, it's, it's everywhere. It's in your social media. It's every show. You're inter- interrupted by a commercial. It's that time you want to watch that one commercial, but you have to watch a commercial to watch the commercial. Don't tell me you don't do that. Um, but each of these ads are, are communicating a message to us. They're trying to tell us to believe in something. Some truth Something about their product is better or more improved or longer lasting or it's going to make us healthier. Some truth that it's calling us to respond to. And some of these messages are very moving. Uh, recently, the Olympics, I know that some of the Paralympics are still going on. We like the Olympics. We, we enjoy them. And uh, there's this ad that it has run in past Olympics that it, it, I just, it hits me every time. But it's about a swimmer, and the shot begins with a swimmer in the water, and you immediately realize that she has no, no legs. She's an amputee. And then it cuts to her backstory. This woman makes a phone call, it appears from an adoption agency to another woman, and tells her that they found a baby girl for them. She, she's in Siberia, but as a caveat, she has a serious health condition, and her legs, both of them, will have to be amputated. And the lady warns her, her life will not be easy. And then you begin to see this series of images of her growing up and her swimming and coaches cheering her on. And, uh, and then the woman on the other end of the phone says, I know it won't be easy, but it will be amazing. I can't wait to meet her. And I'm just choked up even as I tell about it. Why it's moving is because it's real. It's about this woman named Jessica Long, a decorated Olympian in swimming. It makes it so moving, even though it's just one minute, is because it's a message of a real story. Someone's real story in a pathway of hardship, of loss, of love, of sacrifice, and in that greatness and beauty. And we are here in the book of Mark, and we were told, we heard last week, this is a book of stories, of narratives. Some of them move super fast, as we see this morning. Some of them slow down. Some of them are the one-minute snapshot, but But they're here to tell us something, a message about who Jesus is. The messages of sacrifice and of greatness and of beauty and of love. And they're there to move us. 
They're to bear down on us and call us to respond. And so a little recap. Remember, there are, there are two parts of Mark we, were, we saw last week, and they answer, they basically ask and answer these three questions. There's a little graphic here, and you'll see this little graphic embedded in our Mark art. And I want to thank TLI, Training Leaders International. Uh, they use this in their curriculum, and uh, I was able to utilize the same sort of icon to help us teach our brothers and sisters overseas uh, and, uh, and so they allowed us to adopt that from the curriculum to, to serve our series. So I want to thank them. But we have these, these two parts, chapters 1 through 8, talks about the identity of Jesus. Who, it's answer, asking this question, who is Jesus? And we come to this answer, he is the sovereign son of God. And then the second part of Mark, chapters 9 through 16, help us unfold what, what did Jesus come to earth to do? And what does following him mean? His mission is to, to suffer and to serve others, and we suffer for his sake, and we serve like him. And so finding ourselves on the front end of Mark, we, we come to this section. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15 this morning, and this is considered uh, the prologue of Mark, uh, Mark's book. A prologue, what does it do? It helps us sort of introduce the background of what maybe is going on. It helps us maybe give some details. It hints at maybe a foreshadowing of future things to come, where the story's going, where conflicts might be. And it, most of all, drives us into this first question of who is Jesus. And so let us read our text this morning, and then we're going to pray and dive in. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel." Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in your word we have eternal life. In your words, the words that are coming to us right now come the truth, the message, 
the hope of, of salvation, and it's, and it's truly in you, Jesus. And so this morning, as we, as we want to understand who you are and more deeply and what you came to do, would you come by your spirit, help us see, help us to know, help us to believe, and, and help us to respond to that. We ask this, Lord, in your name, amen, amen, amen. Well, Mark here front loads his book to help us see Jesus' identity by offering several messengers who are affirming, who are validating who he is. And ultimately, he's going to get us to the messenger himself. And so we see these real-life stories with truth for us to see who Jesus is. And we reflected on verse 1-1 last week, but I want us to just look at that for a little bit here this morning. And Mark does a couple things with this verse. He's setting up our section that we just read, and he's also encapsulating all that he's going to do through his book with this verse. The beginning of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We hear who he is, and he is communicating to us what he's come to do. He is Christ, the Messiah, and he's bringing good news, salvation. Now, this word gospel or good news is this Greek word, euangelion, and it's a compound word of two different words, this you, which is Something that sounds good, a, a good word, a joyful word. You, get, you hear this word eulogy, right? A good word spoken at a funeral. And then the word angelos, which is the word for message. You hear that word angel in there, right? This angelic message that would come at times. So this is the good word, good word or the good news that comes in Jesus. It's an announcement. It's a pronouncement of a good message. In the Old Testament, it would be used, for example, of a victory that had been won or an announcement of victory in a war. Imagine a city, all their military are out in battle and they're waiting for the, that runner to come back to the city. There's a watchman looking out, awaiting the message to come and the, the announcement runs in and this good word is pronounced, victory, we have won. This is this good news that we see in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. It's, it's that good news, right, that we want to hear when the doctor checks us out and there's this pronouncement that what we're facing, this sickness, is not fatal. You're not going to die. This is good news. William Tyndale wrote this in 1525. Euangelion, what we call the gospel, is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and leap for joy. Now, if you know anything about William Tyndale, he was a, a translator of the Bible in English, seeking it to make it available in the common language of his time, and he was martyred for his mission and for his trust in the Savior. He understood what this good news was. He understood this good news was ultimately about someone, about Jesus. And this is the greatest news of all. He was willing to die for this 
news. And this is the good news that we're wanting to get into this morning. We wanted to hear afresh this morning because it's an announcement. It's, a, it's an announcement of a victory. It's an announcement of not something you and I have to do ultimately. It's an announcement of something someone else did for you and for I. And that makes that news really, really good. And he says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus. That should sound a little familiar to us, right? It should hearken back to something. It sounds familiar. In the beginning should pull us back to Genesis 1-1. This, this creation, God present, speaking this world into existence, speaking life into existence. And now here we have this, this creation, a, a new creation. This new beginning of God's salvation is unfolding in his son, Jesus. It's a, it's a new inbreaking of salvation history for God's people. And not just for Israel, but Jew and Gentile. So the voice of the one who set stars in place, called light out of darkness, is now going to come as a man and is going to declare his good news to us. And so Mark launches us into this new work of God by giving us several messengers and their messages to help us see Jesus as the Son of God. And so we're going to look at the, the prophets, the Father, and then the Son himself. So the message of the prophets. So he begins giving us this, this reference of the Old Testament. And we're going to find as we unpack our section, there's all of these references and connections to the Old Testament Mark wants us to understand Jesus is coming in light of redemption history revealed and promised many, 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 many years ago. And he starts with this reference to the Isaiah prophet, Isaiah the prophet. But what's interesting is if you dig into this text, you'll find that there is links to other references in the Old Testament. It was a, a technique in Judaism where they melted different texts, they blended them together to give us a, an overarching message. And so there's this reference to actually Exodus 23.20, Isaiah 43, and Malachi 3.1, all packed in to this. And what is unique is each of these have some unique context to what God was doing in salvation and redemption in that time of history, a different facet. Malachi is one of judgment, a messenger is to come in judgment for a wayward Israel. Exodus 23 is when Israel was about to, a charge for them as they go into Canaan, God is going to send an angel to speak God's word to them, and they are to hear and obey that angelic voice. And Isaiah 40 is this heralding of God's comfort as he leads his people into safety and provision. This is what God is doing in Jesus. A message of repentance is coming for a wayward people there to hear and obey this greater prophet that is coming. And he's leading them like, like an exodus, a new exodus, his people from wilderness and lostness into a promised land. And so there's a, a recognizing from the prophets of old what God is doing, a connection to what he'd promised before. And John is part of this, John the baptizer. John is fulfilling this forerunning or preparing that the prophet is speaking of. 
And you see all, you see God, you see Jesus, and you see John all embedded in this prophetic word. So here's John, this messenger who shows up in the wilderness preaching and baptizing. And he, kind of like a bizarre guy, very strange, in the wilderness, weird clothes, and somebody who understood their, their Old Testament Bible, they would have made this connection, the connection to dots of Elijah, the prophet. In 1 Kings 1.8, it says, Elijah wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. There's this sort of new prophet stepping in, but he's declaring not some new message necessarily, but a message of returning to God, much echoing, much like echoing Elijah. And he has this strange diet of eating large grasshoppers with honey. Kids, who wants that for lunch today? Large grasshoppers covered in honey? If you want to dig into what that all means, I could point you to some resources, which we don't have time for, but it's, it's pretty awesome. So here we have this strange prophet eating strange food, no royal clothes, no palace or rich person's meals, and Elijah's there heralding this message, much like the prophets of old towards Israel, a renewed covenant with the Lord. And what is his message? John preached the message of Repentance, repentance, right in step with previous prophets, but he's calling them to prepare their hearts to do more than just turn right in right, to right place with God. There is this readying for the Messiah that is to come. He's calling to prepare their hearts to receive God's ways and to walk in them anew. Not just a change of some moral behavior, but a change of heart towards the living God. All of their life orientated around him. And this is to be expressed in this act of water baptism. An expression of cleansing, of returning to God. And flocks of people are confessing their sins, they're being baptized. Now this this act of baptism... uh, it's super unclear and kind of how this got where it is as a ceremonial response to, uh, to God. There are these Old Testament connections like Israel when they're at Mount Sinai and the Lord called them to prepare to receive the covenant of the law and they were to wash their clothes and they were to purify themselves from idols to receive God speaking. Ezekiel speaks of a sprinkling of water to wash his people clean. So somehow this picture of ceremonial sort of cleansing and washing was a picture of what God wanted to do in the hearts of his people. And all of this was pointing to something beyond John. It was a pointing, pointing to the way and preparing the way of the Lord, their hearts for Jesus. John knew he was just a pointer. He was a servant of something greater than him, the Son of God. And that's why he would say, I, I'm not even worthy to, to stoop and untie this man's sandals. And someone who would stoop down and untie somebody's sandals was the lowest and lowest of servants. And so he was speaking of the humility, of course, of John. But more than that, he was speaking of the greatness of who Jesus is. I'm not even worthy to do this. One greater than me. One that goes greater beyond my ministry who will change everything. He is the one 
that's coming. My baptism was of water, but he is going to, Jesus would, bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this would be shocking to hear. Because there was only one person that had the authority and power to send the Holy Spirit down upon somebody. That was reserved for God alone. John is saying, this Jesus, this Messiah that is coming, he will have authority to send the Holy Spirit and fill people with that Spirit. The Son of God is going to be God himself. And this would resound with anticipation of what old, the Old Testament would have spoke of, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring, an anticipation where the outpouring of the Spirit wouldn't just come upon certain individuals for certain amounts of time, but it would come upon all of God's people. The Holy Spirit would come down and fill all of God's covenant people, seen in Joel chapter 2 or Ezekiel chapter 36. The Spirit would come and not simply allow God's laws and words to be written on tablets of stone, but it would be written on the hearts of God's people. The Spirit would take hearts of stone and make them alive in God. And this would just not be an external cleansing with water. It would be a deep internal transformation that would come by the Spirit within the hearts of people. This was speaking of, and we would find out later, is Pentecost, when God pours out his spirit upon his church for mission, for obedience. And when people are now saved, they are filled with that spirit. One of the things that this section does, it, it helps us orientate Jesus' coming to something historic and ancient. And I think it should help us remember that we are connected to something historic and ancient. I don't know if, it's, if this happens to you, but if I get on my newsfeed or Twitter or something, and it, there is this, this pressing to feel like the immediacy of what's going on and the radical nature of the news of what's taking place is unlike anything that has ever happened in history. Some of the things that are taking place are unique to our time, but, but there, the Bible says there is nothing new under the sun. There is a God who rules all of history, who knows all of history, who, who maps out all of history. And when we see Jesus stepping in on this earth and beginning to walk, we realize that he's doing something new, but he, he's in control of all of that. And so... As we see these, these examples, I hope they would help us realize that God is not being caught off guard of what's happening in our day. Nothing tomorrow in the news is catching God off guard. He's in control. He knows. He has something in his redemptive history moving forward even today in and among us. And so this message comes and it's a fulfillment of this Old, Te Old Testament prophetic vision and word of John. And in John's prophetic preparing, we see Jesus' arrival. This scripture, we see here, scripture is fulfilled. Scripture is fulfilled by this Messiah who's coming. And this Messiah is going to come and do something greater in his 
baptism. And then we see our next message, the message of the Father. So verse 9, Jesus arrives. Those days he comes from Nazareth of Galilee, and he comes to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. Now why, why Jesus? We're briefly, sort of asking this question, what, why does Jesus need a baptism? I mean, John is preaching a baptism of repentance. It, isn't Jesus sinless? Why would he need to be baptized if he has no sin? Well, two, it does two things. One, it identifies Jesus with sinners. And secondly, it approves of John as the prophet of God. His word is true. And he is responding to that word. Jesus didn't have to be baptized as a sinner. There's no repentance. He was sinless. But he did so to identify himself with a sinful people. A, a solidarity with humanity. Those who were in need of salvation, he was identifying himself as one of among them so that he could be a substitute because Mark would bring us there eventually when he goes upon a cross as a substitute, identifying himself as a sinner, taking our sin upon himself on that cross. And as Jesus does, as he is baptized, as he comes out of the water, three radical signs, three radical things happen. First, the heavens are, are torn open. Now, this is like very violent language in the original language. It's like, it's like it's, the heavens are ripped apart. Something powerful is breaking in from the divine to the human. And then second, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, dove-like, when he comes upon Christ, anointing him. And here, here is what uh, can be connected again to this Another allusion to Genesis, this, this new creation. Remember the spirit hovered over the void, over the water in Genesis, over the face of this void, which would then become beauty. The Savior now is filled by the spirit, commissioned and sanctioned, sanctioned by God, and this, the spirit comes down, hovering over him, dove-like, about to bring him into creation again, translating and transforming it into something redeemed, something beautiful. So the heavens are ripped open, the spirit comes down, and third, we see the Father's voice speak. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is, these, these are powerful powerful words. The Lord, Yahweh, is identifying Jesus as a son. And if a son, then he is also God. And he is pleased with him, meaning the son must be right, must be righteous. And in that, he is affirming his love and righteousness before him. These are all confirmations of Jesus as the Son of God and his divine origin. And again, embedded in these very words are these Old Testament connections. Two of them that I'll highlight for us in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was a royal psalm. It was used when the king was anointed and installed. And another was a reference to Isaiah 42, which is about the suffering servant. 
I'll have the text up here for you to, to see. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Observe what is going on here. These, these witnesses, these messages are coming speaking of who Jesus is. Although already king of kings, he is receiving his affirmation as the messianic king. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon his servants to bring justice and salvation. These Old Testament connections are here to, to drive us into the, the reality. This is the messianic king. This is the son of God. Jesus is who he says he is. This is his identity. One commentator would say, we could almost read this prologue every time we read another story through the book of Mark to remind us this is what's going on. Jesus is unfolding the reality of who he is and what he's coming to do. And we see present here the entire Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, the Father God there present speaking, the Spirit of God coming down upon the Savior, actively anointing him, commissioning him, empowering him to mission. And that's what we see next in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he's out there 40 days. Again, another connection to our Old Testament. 40, this number full of symbolism. Moses on the Mount, of, Mount Sinai receiving the tablets. He was up there for 40 days, 40 nights of Israel wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus now out there 40 days being tempted by Satan. So I was moving through this, this section of text. I just had this sort of question. Is this, is this another messenger or message? It's interesting that Mark doesn't even give Satan any lines in the script. It's as if, it's if he has no voice. Jesus doesn't succumb to the temptations. Maybe for Mark, he, he comes across as this sort of muted, deaf messenger powerless in his ability to convince anything with the Savior. And we'll see in other accounts with Mark, Jesus telling demons to be quiet, silencing them. He's telling us Jesus is Lord. He has power over all things, even fallen angelic beings. And note the setting of our first scenes, John in the wilderness, Jesus' baptism in the wilderness. Jesus is drove into the wilderness and Jesus is having victory, and he comes out victorious. This, this is Israel's reversal. All of those who fell to temptation in the wilderness, now in Jesus, God's righteous son, his reign, the promise of a new kingdom is being seen in his faithful, enduring, obedient son. And this is Jesus is among the wild animals. Just a just sort of strange statement, just sort of stuck in there. It's said so plainly, like it's kind of like no big deal. Jesus was among the wild animals. 
uh, several weeks ago, I was in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. I was in the wilderness as well. And when you go in, you have to stop at a outfitter to give you all these rules about going in. And as we did, we were told that the lake that we were going to be camping on, there had been four food bags taken within the last day or two from a bear, which they aptly named Brutus. Uh, same lake that we were staying on, this is taking place. But we canoed in, we found our site, and the site we landed on that was open had this ominous message etched into some rocks there at the site. Bad bear, climbed tree, not afraid of you, 813 through 816. It was 816. We decided to stay at the camp. We thankfully didn't see a bear, but that first night I got into my tent with some trepidation and anxiety, uh, but we were spared Brutus. But I, I feel like as I thought about Jesus in the wilderness and just, just how vulnerable we can feel, Jesus was with the wild animals unharmed. He was with Satan unharmed. With all our connections to the Old Testament, could this be another connection to Isaiah, possibly, that Mark is pulling us into, where Jesus is showing us, where we see God's renewed creation. The prophet Isaiah would tell us of a day when wolf and lamb lie together. A child plays at the den of the cobra. And here, the Son of God, the Messiah, breaking into creation, he's ushering in his kingdom. He has authority over all creation. It's his. And the, and the angels come ministering to him. Angels come to his aid. Remember Daniel in the lion's den. Kids, what happened in the lion's den? Do, do the lions harm Daniel? No, they don't. Why? Because angels are present in the den holding shut these beasts' mouth. Jesus, he does not need protection whatsoever. He's a king of kings. He's the sovereign son of God. He actually has angels coming to submit and serve and care for him, showing that he has authority and command over angelic beings. He has command over demons and Satan himself. In the beginning, creation in the garden, Adam and Eve were tempted and failed by Satan. In the wilderness, this recreation, Satan is trying to tempt again. And yet Jesus, the son, succeeds where Israel and all of God's people had failed in the past. And Jesus comes in and says, I am fulfilling this test for you in my obedient power and authority. And I want to note just a little literary observation as we read through Mark, and I think you'll enjoy it as we move through, but note this word immediately in verse 12. Immediately he saw the heavens. And verse, well, as well as verse uh, uh, 10 and 12. And then if you have your Bibles open, you kind of like scrub ahead and, and look at a few other references. Verse 18, verse 21, verse 23, verse 29. And you'll see this repetition, and immediately, and immediately. And immediately. It's all over Mark. Approximately 40 times he uses this, this little phrase. It's one of his favorite words. Why, why does he do this? Well, if you, I encourage you to do this, sit down and just read Mark in one sitting. And you will feel the pace of that. If you listen to that 
that uh, video that we had posted for you. you. You sort of feel that. There's this pace to Mark. Mark wants us to move with Jesus in his mission. And he is moving forward. And nothing is going to stop him from his mission and his goal as he moves towards his cross. And he wants us to, to move with him and see ourselves move towards him and to follow him as well. And what I appreciate about Mark is he, is he takes these momentous situations and he can pack them into two verses. Here, Jesus is driven into the wilderness. He defeats Satan. He's out there 40 days. And it's just like, I just read that in a few seconds. Wow, a lot happened in this very moment. It shows us that Jesus is decisive. He's working. He's moving his redemption forward. And we know from other accounts, this was a lengthy kind of process. We see Jesus fasting and no food. We see this back and forth exchange with Satan and other gospels. And yet here, Mark chooses to cram it down really tight. And he chooses to use this word immediately to kind of move us forward in his book. I tell you, that it helps my heart and it helps my, my thinking when I'm able to frame things that are going on in my life in a way as I consider how Mark does this. Hard situations that do feel like they drag on forever and ever in my life. What seems like catastrophic or impossible from my vantage point to get through, it reminds me that the sovereign God is at work. He's not oblivious to that. He's right there, actually. The Spirit is present with and in and among us, and he's moving things forward in your life. As big and long as they feel or as feels like compact and jammed in a moment, the Lord is moving. He's doing his good work in your life. It's going somewhere. It's going somewhere for your good. It's going somewhere for his glory. But we doubt that. There's a situation that you're struggling, doubting God in the midst of that, and it just seems to be dragging on. Know that that there's something that God's doing. He's moving something forward, and he's with and among you. So we see the message of the prophets. We hear the message, the word, divine word and voice of the Father. And now we come to the message of the Son. John steps aside. He did his part, and Jesus steps forward on the stage coming out of this testing, spirit-filled, father-commissioning, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. And we see the content of that good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. It's the kingly rule of God set upon something or someone or situation, not geographical, though God reigns over all. He is referencing here, not a nation or a land, but his rule that's, that's breaking in through the reign of Jesus over hearts, over minds. And we're going to see in Mark over demons and over sins and over sickness. And we're going to see unfolding in Mark the many ways people perceive or respond or reject to when the, the, the kingdom as it comes near to them. And Jesus saying, my rule, my glory, my kingdom is now here and we should respond to that kingdom by repenting and believing in this gospel, his gospel. 
To enter into the kingdom begins with a turning away, a turning around, a turning to God into Jesus' way, to trusting in who he is and to follow him in obedience. When we hear that word repent, sometimes we can just think sort of narrowly of some moral errors that I need to stop doing. But this is a much more broader reality, this repentance, it's a turning from all of our false thinking, of our beliefs that don't align with who God is and his kingdom. And there, there, there are two parts, but it is one thing. You can't have one without the other. It is one movement. I'm turning from my beliefs and my ways and my self-autonomy and my righteousness, and I'm turning to trust and faith in who God is and his authority and his salvation. A turning from sins and self and turning in faith and trust to Jesus. And when we do, we take part in his salvation, this good news. This good news which captures all that Jesus is and what he has done. One author wrote this, there is everything to be gained by starting out with a striking statement of the good news. For the rest of Mark is encouraging us to see all the sayings, miracles, acts of Jesus, including his crucifixion and God's raising him from the dead in the setting provided by the words with which Jesus began. So as Jesus says, believe in this good news, he's communicating to us his message, but it captures and connects to all of him, all of what he is going to do and say in his life, death, and resurrection. And it is called a respond to this good news. A response to the gospel is ultimately a response to him. The message that comes is really the messenger. He, Jesus, is that message. It is in him. And one beautiful thing that makes this such good news as we see in the prologue and what unfolds in Mark is this is all the initiation of God. The initiation of God. The time has come. The kingdom, my kingdom is at hand, is near. The sovereign God has chosen a time and now his sovereign rule is present in his reign, embodied and seen in Jesus coming and initiating toward sinners. Jesus proclaims the good news, and he is the good news, and he comes near. He is at hand. This should just, just be so encouraging to us. He, church, brought the good news to you because he initiated that. His kingdom, if you are in his kingdom and know his kingdom, it's because he initiated his kingdom towards you. That's what makes this really good news. He moved towards us first. I did not love him first. He loved me first. He moves towards us. And we'll see Jesus move towards the lepers and the sick and near the lost, near the demon possessed, near the empty religious systems that he comes and shatters and tears down. Because religion says, I can earn my way to God. I can get near or by him by something I can do to be acceptable, work my way in. Jesus comes and says, no, my kingdom comes. My kingdom comes near, and my good news is you get into this kingdom based on what I have done. Believe in me. Your righteousness, your cleansing comes because you walk into my way. 
repent and believe in this good news. So question for you this morning, do you feel like you have to do something first to get good news? Or is it good news proclaimed over you and you just receive that good news? You don't have to earn this good news. You turn in faith and trust in the good news, which is Jesus Christ. He initiates and we respond. He initiated with his life, death, and resurrection, and we respond to that good news with repentance and faith upon him. So this morning, I, I want to call this, call this challenge out to you that Jesus would give you right now from his word. My kingdom is at hand. I am here. Repent and believe the gospel. Have you, have you not done that this morning? Maybe you have not turned from yourself and your sins and turned in faith in Jesus and who he is. Jesus says, do that today. Repent and believe in me. Trust in me. Trust in my gospel. They recall in verse 1-1, one, one, the beginning of the gospel, which is radical, is Mark ends his book with some women discovering that Jesus, being told Jesus has risen, and we're told to go tell this good news that he's alive. And they run off. And it's kind of like it just, it just hangs there, like a cliffhanger. Like, what, what just happened? Well, there was this beginning and this sort of open-ended cliffhanger, I think, that Mark leaves us with is to remind us that this, this story continues. The beginning of what Jesus has done crescendoed at the resurrection, but he is still pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his disciples. He's still filling them with the love of God and his son, making hearts alive. And Jesus' gospel is continuing right here in and among us. The gospel story begun with Jesus and doing what he did and what he's doing. And it's continuing right here in your story and my story. So church, let us this morning, in the midst of all the the sort of false ads that maybe we maybe even walked into church this morning with, the, the false messages, the false narratives, the, the cluttering of our hearts of untruths about who we are, about our circumstances, maybe Satan's perpetual lies that he tries to speak into your ear, ear about you're not worthy, that you are condemned, that you can't come near God false things we tell ourselves about God's love or who we are. And, and let us hear the message of Jesus. Let us hear the good news of Jesus Christ. A message that has come. A message that was promised and that has come. A message that is a person and that person is God. God has come and his kingdom has come. His kingdom has come and the king of kings is here to display his glory and his grace and to welcome you and I into that all the time, freshly, through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. So hear the prophetic word of the ancient prophets. Hear the Father, hear the Spirit, hear the Son, and let us, let us be like John who, who humbly came and said, we're not worthy, but we receive this glad news. We're not worthy, but we receive the messenger. We receive Jesus, the Son of God. I tell you, when we receive that good news, when we receive Jesus, it, 
I believe is what like Tyndale would say. It makes our hearts glad, it makes us sing, and it makes us leap for joy. So let's remember that good news this morning. It's ours in Jesus Christ. And when we are in Jesus Christ, we, we are now adorned with his righteousness. Jesus tells us in his high priestly prayer that the love that the Father has for the Son is now the same love that the Father has for us. So if we are in Christ and we are clothed in his righteousness, we are adopted and we are made sons and daughters. And the same love that the Father has for the Son, he has for you. We can hear these words echoing over us as well. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. That makes my heart glad. That makes me sing. That makes me leap for joy because I get that because Jesus initiated that towards me. And that is good, glad news. Lord, thank you for this good, glad news. That we, we get to get into your kingdom and we get to get into your love and your blessing and your acceptance. We get in this glad, good news because you initiated something towards us. You, you move towards us, Lord. Lord, I, I pray this morning that, that that news would make us glad people, joyful people afresh this morning. Maybe even leap for joy. All the benefits of your kingdom come by not what we've done, but what you have done for us, Jesus. And, and we get to hear those words of beloved upon us. If there are some here that are struggling to understand that you are the son of God, believing those words and responding to those words, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would draw them to you today to repent and believe in you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.